Menopause Space podcast is brought to you by Reset 40, an evidence-based nutrition and wellness program for menopause and perimenopause. Around 47 million people reach the age of menopause every year. The decline of estrogen in our bodies comes with debilitating symptoms, as well as numerous health risks to the heart, bones and brain. While treatments exist to offset these risks, fear and misinformation have skewed perception of what can be life-saving treatments. Today, we sort through the science with Dr. Sarah Borwin. I'm Lisa Tarquini in Hong Kong, and you're listening to The Menopause Space. Coming up, osteoporosis. I mean, some of the stats are staggering that if you you should treat it before you get to osteoporosis because do you know what the one-year mortality is from hip fracture? It's 23%. Oh my goodness. If you fix it. And if you don't fix it, it's 70%. And of course, that's because most hip fractures happen in older people, but it's still a staggering number. Prevention is key. We take a look at what we can do now to offset the risk of osteoporosis in the future. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Menopause Space. Hi, Lisa. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I wanted to chat to you about some of the health risks that are associated with the menopause and maybe some myth busting because with good intention there is a lot of information out there unfortunately there's some misinformation so it would be good to just go through some of the science behind maybe these health risks what i would like to say to the listeners is this episode is not as a scaremongering episode it's more to raise awareness on the associated health risks of menopause and for your information but also we will be talking about some practical tips that can offset some of these health risks so it's not to you know frighten anybody but it's just to inform you about this information the reason why i'm so determined to get this information out to women and trans and non-binary people in Hong Kong, across Asia and across the globe is because when I finished my cancer treatment in 2012 at the age of 32, my oncologist gave me HRT. And when she gave me the HRT, my first response was, oh my goodness, should I be taking that? I've just had cancer. Is there not like a really high breast cancer risk with taking this HRT? Because of what my mum had thought, you know, because my mum and my aunts were the only people that I knew that was going through the menopause. And my oncologist was great. Her name is Dr. Andrek uh, from Belfast Cancer Centre. And she was very frank always with me. And she said, no, Lisa, you need this HRT to protect your heart, your brain and your bones. But it didn't resonate with me. Like I didn't understand it. Can you explain why it was so important for her to give me this HRT to protect my heart, my brain and my bones? Well, you went through, uh, Lisa, unfortunately for you, you went through a, a sort of forced menopause at a very early age, correct? Yes, I mean, yes, were, 32, yeah. You were 32. So at 32, your body is meant to have estrogen. It, it needs estrogen. And menopause is a transition that we all, if we live long enough, go through. And it's a normal life stage where we stop producing very much estrogen. And at that point we're kind of designed to need less. 
But at 32, if without estrogen, your bones are going to stop building, you're going to become prone to heart disease, and your brain is going to be suffer from the lack of estrogen. So it's kind of different to give you estrogen when you're 32, and you're kind of just normalizing you to what a 32-year-old woman needs, as opposed to giving a 70-year-old woman estrogen. But the cardiovascular disease, then from my... So after hearing that, and then you know, going through a few years of recovery, I started to do the research on menopause because there was no information really around menopause. And cardiovascular disease is the number one health risk of women, cause of mortality post-menopause. So tell us a little bit about that. So, yeah, and that's absolutely true. And I think traditionally coronary heart disease was considered a male problem. And women were actually really underrepresented in the trials, underdiagnosed and undertreated. And the outcomes for women, they reflected that until quite recently, more women than men were dying of heart disease. So what was happening was that up until menopause, whether it's natural or not natural, women do have a lower risk of heart disease. But after menopause, the rates increase until they're equal or higher to men by about 10 years afterwards. And many of the studies in the 1980s and 90s didn't specifically exclude women, but they had requirements that made the sample groups overwhelmingly male, like excluding women of childbearing age, for example. So as a result, everything reflected male heart disease. To be fair, there has been a movement to address that. And since about 2000, cardiovascular mortality in women has declined precipitously, actually more than among men, because I think women are also more cooperative when they're told that they need to do something. So once you tell them, once you give them the power and the tools, they can do it. And so since 2014, fewer, at least in North America, where a lot of the data comes from, fewer women died from heart disease than men for the first time in a couple of decades. That's really encouraging to hear. So women now, given the information, they're using these practical lifestyle tips, possibly. It's starting to. Yes, yes. And I think doctors are also becoming more aware as well that, you know, that this is an issue for women as well. There's still a long way to go, but definitely it's improving. I'm wondering if, was there a difference there? Sorry to poke you with the research, but was there a difference there with those women in women who took HRT versus women who didn't? Let me go back a little bit on that. When I was a young doctor decades ago, I actually worked for a while in a women's midlife clinic in Toronto. And at that time, it was before the big studies, the Women's Health Initiative and the Nurses' Health Study, before they came out, we believed that all women needed estrogen hormone replacement after menopause in order to prevent heart disease, dementia, etc., and osteoporosis. Unfortunately, when the Women's Health Study came out, it didn't show a prevention of heart disease. It actually showed increased risk of heart disease in women on HRT. And very unfortunately, the study was stopped early, mainly because it showed a small increased risk in breast cancer in women who took HRT. And that has become the mantra, you know, HRT causes breast cancer. And unfortunately, missed a whole lot of nuance around how you take HRT, when you take it, which particular hormones do you take. It was a very unsophisticated analysis of the data. It just said no women should take HRT because they're going to get breast cancer and heart disease. And that idea has really stuck in people's heads. It's not accurate. 
So there is something with heart disease in particular, there is something called the timing hypothesis, which is that if you take the HRT started around the time of menopause, particularly if you take bioidentical hormones, and particularly if you take a route that bypasses the liver, so through the skin, for example, then it is actually protective against heart disease. But if you take what was used in the Women's Health Initiative was the old form of estrogen, you know, which was made from pregnant mare's urine. It was called Premarin, conjugated equine estrogen, and, you know, and medroxyprogesterone. So synthetic hormones taken orally, and those have gone, you know, hardly anybody uses those anymore at all. So if you take natural hormones, and if you take them at the right time, it's looking, although the data's not 100%, you know, conclusive yet, but it looks like it's protective if you take it early. What isn't helpful is to go through menopause, wait 10 years, and then start estrogen. Yeah. Do all the suffering first and then take the estrogen. And then it it won't help you. But, you know, Dr. Louise Newson in the UK, I'm UK trained and registered nutritionist. And I follow that, you know, the UK kind of campaign on, on the use of HRT. And she's a huge advocate. And for the listeners, for the women who, you know, are fearing HRT because of this Women's Health Initiative study and this research, this research has actually been discarded. Is that correct? I wouldn't say it's been discarded. I actually heard a very good podcast with the woman who was the lead researcher on it. It hasn't been discarded. It's but it's it we are we understand or we should understand now that it was too general. So the idea that all women need hormones, for example, that probably needed to go by the by. Not all women need hormones. A lot of women do, but not all women do. Also, it didn't look at anything like the timing, like that that's very important. If you're gonna take hormones, you started around menopause. You don't wait. And a lot of women do wait. They can wait for several years sometimes before they decide that they want to do something about it. And unfortunately, that doesn't seem to really be helpful. But it is very clear that estrogen is particularly helpful for managing symptoms around menopause. Very helpful for that. And nobody nobody should disagree with that. But also may reduce some risks. And uh, heart disease is one of them that if you start it early, it it may be protective. So let's go back to the the heart disease because estrogen does have this cardioprotective role within the body as it does around the brain and it does within our bones and our pelvic area and basically everything. It's, It's a phenomenal hormone, obviously. But when it starts to drop, women will go to their doctor maybe and have some tests done and see maybe in their late 40s or you know early 50s that their total cholesterol has risen and then some women if lifestyle is not overly healthy then blood pressure may start to rise as well how do you help women manage their cholesterol and and you know blood pressure hypertension things like that well, well, first I send them to you, Lisa. <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, look, it, it's true. 80%, we think, 80% of heart attacks can be prevented through lifestyle changes and risk factor management. But women have to prioritize that and take it seriously. You know, one of the things that happened with the Women's Health Initiative uh, study was that women became increasingly vigilant about breast cancer, which is a good thing. It needed to happen. But it also kind of led them to underestimate and um, dismiss the other risks, in particular things like heart disease and osteoporosis. 
So there's a big study called the InterHeart study that looked at modifiable risk factors for heart attack in 52 countries. And it identified nine risk factors that account for 94% of the population attributable risk of heart attack in women. And those are smoking, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, abdominal obesity, dietary patterns, how much fruit and vegetable, etc. you eat, regular physical activity, alcohol intake, and psychosocial factors, so stress. And that's huge. And if if you think of the lifestyle, just, you know, on those nine points, if you think of the lifestyle in Hong Kong, where a lot of women work hard, they're, you know, possibly at the pinnacle of their career, juggling a family, they're highly stressed, but they're managing that stress with being social, drinking, possibly smoking, not eating well because they've got lethargy, so they're choosing the wrong foods. Then they don't get to move as much because of being exhausted like it's a huge yeah it's a huge vicious circle and i think you know an important little point well not little an important point to note is that even in the women's health initiative study the increased risk in breast cancer wasn't that much and it was actually slightly less than the increased risk of breast cancer associated with drinking a glass of wine a day yes alcohol and the risk of cancer is huge and should be a public health campaign like smoking um, and most likely will be in the next decade yes it's starting to be but many women are willing to take the risk of the alcohol but then get scared about estrogen which is frightening because the estrogen could help make them feel better so that they wouldn't need the alcohol to help (laughs) constant juggle oh my goodness Look, you know, I would like to say, you know, I do enjoy a glass of wine. I'm not judging anybody who drinks wine, but I suppose this excessive, you know, working environment and and lifestyle that is led in Hong Kong, plus the networking and the drinking and, you know, the lack of sleep is, it's all contributing to, you know, higher cholesterol, higher blood pressure. Definitely. Yeah. I can enjoy a glass of wine as well. It's all about moderation and, and just putting risks in perspective. Absolutely. So let's then talk about osteoporosis. So osteoporosis is probably one of the most prevalent of the health risks because of the loss of bone mineral density. Um, we hit peak bone mass at around 34, 35. And then with this drop in estrogen, we, we, we go into this bone loss. Medically, what advice do you give women? I know lifestyle, you know, I help women in a different way, but medically with osteopenia and osteoporosis, how do you advise and, and help women keep their bones strong? Yes, and I completely agree with you, Lisa. Osteoporosis is definitely an underestimated health risk. It affects more women than breast cancer, stroke, and heart attack combined. So we really should be really thinking about osteoporosis and how we can prevent it. So yes, your bones, they're constantly remodeling. You know, their bone is being resorbed, and that's balanced by bone formation. And until about the age of 30, bone formation can exceed resorption. So you're getting increasing bone density. And then normally it kind of stays stable until the perimenopause. And then it starts to decline kind of rapidly in the early postmenopausal years and then more slowly, but continuing. And then as the bone density falls, I mean, it's not the density that matters. It's the fact that you become more prone to breaking the bones and that's really debilitating. 
So the best way to have strong bones is to enter menopause with a really healthy, strong bone so that you have good reserve. So the first thing is to make sure that during your younger years that you do weight-bearing exercise and you get enough calcium and all of those things and you don't smoke. And And you get enough calories. And you get enough calories, exactly. Because there's a lot of overly health-conscious, you know, 20, 30-year-olds, you know, wanting to get on a junk, get in their bikinis, doing in these you know fad crazy crash diets and restricting yes. calories and nutrition which really affects your bone health because you can lose your menstrual cycle totally agree really important the other things that you can do as you're entering menopause are all of those healthy things weight bearing impact exercise so that means unfortunately things like swimming or bike riding are great exercise but they're not so helpful for your bones because the water or the bike are bearing the weight So you you need to be doing weight-bearing exercise or Pilates and yoga where you use your body weight in exercise and doing weights. Those things are very helpful for the bones. Making sure you get adequate calcium and vitamin D, preferably from natural sources, i.e. from diet and sunshine. If necessary, a supplement, but we can talk more about that. Definitely don't smoke and don't drink too much. And yes, keep your weight healthy. Neither being overweight or underweight is healthy for your bones. I'm on a couple of WhatsApp groups and forums and there's, you know, been a few times where women have talked about taking calcium supplementation for osteoporosis and or preventing it and keeping their their bones strong, even when they haven't had their calcium levels tested by a doctor. Personally, I would say I'm quite level-headed and I would say, you know, please do get the your calcium levels checked by a doctor before megadosing, before overdosing on calcium. Can you just explain medically why taking too much calcium is not great for your body? Yes. First of all, blood tests for calcium are actually only helpful for showing if you have a kind of pathological problem with calcium. Normally, calcium is well balanced in your blood, even if your body stores of calcium are low. So it only will be high or low if you've got some endocrine problem that makes it so. But mega dosing with calcium is definitely not helpful. There's conflicting evidence on it, but there's a concern that if you take too much calcium in the form of pills, that it can actually calcify your blood vessels and lead to increased risk of vascular disease and dementia. So you know, really you are better trying to get as much calcium as you can from your diet. You need as a postmenopausal woman about 1200 milligrams a day, which is the equivalent of about four glasses of milk. Hardly anybody I know drinks four glasses of milk, but you can get calcium from other sources and you should try to get it from your diet and only take a supplement to get up to that 1200 milligram threshold. Yeah, particularly if you are a vegan, vegetarian, who you're not taking on dairy and things like that, you may need that extra little bit of supplementation to do that. Also with osteoporosis, if somebody has a concern about it, what I would suggest is possibly going for a DEXA scan to, you know, work out at what level is that? 100%. I think all women should. Absolutely. Like in your 40s, if you're feeling the signs of perimenopause, for example, maybe start there and then look at your overall lifestyle to get a baseline for sure. Just to get a baseline. Yeah. I I have to say that in countries where there's a socialized medical system, they're probably not going to do it at that stage. But if you have the ability to get a DEXA scan around the time of menopause, it's really helpful as a baseline to know where you are. 
And then, of course, the other thing we need to talk about is estrogen, right? Estrogen, in fact, that's one of my really big beefs with the Women's Health Study is that initiative is that even their data showed a significantly reduced uh, incidence of osteoporosis in women who took hormone replacement, but they glossed that over. It also showed a reduced risk of colon cancer, but they glossed that over because of the breast cancer and because it didn't show the heart disease effects that they, that they hoped it would. But for osteoporosis, estrogen is very effective. The reason your bones become thin and brittle after menopause is because of the loss of estrogen. And in fact, for osteopenia, which is just low bone density, but not yet osteoporosis kind of heading that way. But estrogen is really the only really approved treatment for that. So once you've got osteoporosis, there's a bunch of other treatments, you know, the Fosamax and all the, the medications that can be given. Uh, and to be fair, we often do use those for women who can't take estrogen for osteopenia, but estrogen is the most effective treatment. That and then obviously, like you mentioned in the beginning with the, the strength exercise and, you know, making sure you're doing weight bearing exercise to keep your, your bones strong. We're, we're built to move. And with our, you know, stressful jobs, we're often sitting at the desk. And so making sure that you're getting your steps in, even if it's the 10,000 steps a day, you know, at a minimum is definitely worth focusing on some form of movement as well. Yes, exactly. And, you know, and look, and I guess the message is don't be afraid of estrogen unless you've got a contraindication to it because it's actually overall probably beneficial for your health, especially in the perimenopause. And remember that osteoporosis is a bigger risk for many women. Like you should have your own, you should talk to your doctor and get your own individual risk assessment. Because if you've got a strong family history of osteoporosis and colon cancer, but no family history of breast cancer, you know, maybe that's a completely different situation than someone who's got a gene for breast cancer and has many relatives with it. So you, you would need a different kind of assessment. But osteoporosis, I mean, sometimes some of the stats are staggering that if you, you should treat it before you get to osteoporosis, because do you know what the one-year mortality is from hip fracture? It's 23%. Oh my goodness. If you fix it. And if you don't fix it, it's 70%. And of course, that's because most hip fractures happen in older people, but it's still a staggering number because hip fracture often starts this cycle of decline that leads to loss of independence and loss of mobility and ultimately to death. So we should really take this more seriously and make sure that women are keeping their bones healthy for their long-term health. Another risk factor is age-related dementia in women. And approximately 60% of midlife women have reported problems with their memory during the menopause transition. So this would be, I suppose, perimenopause going into the menopause that one year, the final menstrual period. And, you know, if I think back myself, obviously I was just medically induced into it. Yes. But for the first five years, I honestly thought I had dementia and there's dementia in my dad's side of the family. So I couldn't retain, I was reading, you know, nutrition science journals. I couldn't even retain the abstract. I was having to like, I was, it was blurry and I would read the, the abstract and I wouldn't even know what I was reading. I would forget things. It was so debilitating and caused chronic anxiety 
like physically when I had to stand up and give a lecture to my peers, so whether elite athlete coaches and things like that, my body was physically knocking together in case they asked me a question and I didn't know the answer because my memory wasn't working. Thankfully, I got my hormones checked and everything was back in balance and I got, I regained that back. But a lot of women don't realize that this cognitive decline occurs with estrogen. So can you explain a little bit about the brain and menopause? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, there's a lot of estrogen receptors in your brain. And some of the changes that happen in your brain during the perimenopause, which is the period leading up to that last menstrual period, uh, which can be, you know, it can be short or long, but it, in some women, it's up to 10 years. So some of the changes that happen are there's a reduction of the gray matter. That's the mostly neurons that impacts on social awareness and memory and cognition. And there's also a reduction in white matter. So those are the nerve fibers that link the neurons. There's some changes in the way blood flows through your brain. There's changes in the way your brain consumes glucose, which can cause memory problems. And there's changes in amyloid deposits, which is most associated with Alzheimer's disease. And so all those things can result in brain fog and memory issues. But before you panic about it, you should also know that many of these changes reverse once your brain gets used to menopause, which takes a couple of years. And that your brain has ways of compensating, of increasing ATP energy production and blood flow to affected areas, etc. So it's not a permanent change, but it is a distressing change, especially when it goes on for a long time. And then, you know, you also have to consider it. It gets, it gets all linked up with the other things that are happening. Stress, fatigue, sleep disturbance, say from hot sweats or sleep disturbance from anxiety depression. And estrogen can certainly help some of these things, especially if given early in the menopause. Absolutely. And just working with some of the women myself here over the last few years and signposting them to you and then just being heard and being given estrogen has changed their life. Women in their 40s are wanting to sit at the table at you know senior leadership level and they're working so hard, but they're also juggling the children's school and life at home and possibly caring for an, an elderly loved one. And there's a lot going on. So you think that this is just normal life when actually this is possibly a link to the decline and fluctuation of your sex hormones. And if you get heard by the right person and you get the right treatment, possibly estrogen, it could change, you know, how you feel within your 40s to help you cope and manage those symptoms. You know, I, I guess it's, it comes back again to the male-dominated research that dismissed women's symptoms as being unimportant somehow. And I, it's good to see it changing. I think even in the workplace, it's starting to change. There's starting to be some recognition that we need to address this, but it's slow, right? And it's going to take some time. I'm glad you brought that up because I was listening to a podcast the other day and the lady Glennon Doyle, her name is, it's a podcast called We Can Do Hard Things. And she was interviewing a doctor and she said, 18% of the US male population have erectile dysfunction. Oh dear. And you can't walk to the end of your driveway without being bombarded with advertisements for Viagra. Wow. 18%. Those poor men can't get an erection. But women 
from the test of time have been going through menopause as a natural part of the life cycle, however, have suffered with dementia or cognitive problems or heart disease or, you know, osteoporosis, low libido, dry vagina. Oh, it's just natural. Get on with it. But those per 18%. Yeah, shame. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, you know, like, you know, and now, thankfully, it seems like there are global campaigns for this stage of the life cycle and many more and women are standing up and there's more women in research and hopefully there's more money in research to use women in studies so that this information can come out and better inform health professionals to also give the correct you know information because there's still a reluctance even now with hrt which is it's frightening here in Hong Kong when you, yeah. I think they're, ex- yes, they're still kind of stuck in the Women's Health Initiative, estrogen bad kind of frame of mind and more afraid that if they give estrogen and a woman gets breast cancer, they will have done harm. Whereas if they don't give it and she just suffers, that's natural. So they're not to blame. So these are three of the, the, the main health risks, but suppose there are other risk factors involved in naturally age, just aging. So when you go through the the menopause transition, the body weight distribution shifts towards your abdominal area. And this needs to be highlighted to all women because this has health risks associated with that. So can you give us a little bit of medical insight to, you know, the abdominal fat and what, why that is important to take care of in midlife? Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, I can tell you that it's true that most women start to redistribute weight to the belly and more than before menopause. So they turn from pears to apples, right? And we know that pear-shaped, although a lot of women hate being pear-shaped, is healthier for your heart. And when you have an apple shape, that is an increased risk for heart disease, high cholesterol, and all the complications of that. We don't totally know why it happens. I know you and I have talked about the fact that the body's trying to make estrogen in the belly fat, and that's a theory. We don't totally know why. We know what happens. We know it has to do with the hormone shifts that tend to promote belly fat, but we don't totally know why it happens, but we know it does. And that you can't completely fight it. You should lead a healthy lifestyle and, you know, not be obese and in those things. But you also may have to just accept some change in your body shape. And BMI is used to classify, I suppose, weight in individuals. I suppose that the best way to use it is like a population measurement tool. But unfortunately, it is still used to classify people as, you know, healthy weight, overweight, and then the three classifications of obesity. And it is important, I feel, as a nutritionist, you know, when doctors are giving that classification that there's a bit of TLC around it. It is important to highlight the risk factors with being at this level of BMI, but there should be a little bit of TLC. And, you know, in Hong Kong, I get particularly female clients and they're saying, yeah, my doctor just told me I was fat. And it's like, ah, yes. okay. <laughs> you know, it- well, particularly since there's different standards for different races and Asians are considered to be overweight if their body mass index is over 23, whereas it's 25 for Caucasians. But the BMI... Look, it's a useful index. You know, it does correlate with health risk from obesity or underweight, in fact. 
but it's just not the be all and end all. And it's not very sophisticated, right? It doesn't differentiate between the different body compositions of men and women. It doesn't account for age because as you get older, you may actually benefit from a slightly higher BMI. Absolutely. If you fall, at least you're going to be protected. Yes. If you're very overweight, then falling may increase your risk of fracture because you've got more falling on more weight. But yes, having some buffer is healthy as you get older and particularly because you may get ill and having some reserve in case of illness is, is probably healthy. doesn't mean you have to become obese, but you may benefit from a, being slightly less slender than in your younger years. And the BMI, it doesn't look at other important markers of health, which, you know, are equally, if not more important, like your blood pressure and your cholesterol and your inflammatory markers. It doesn't differentiate between muscle and fat or how it's distributed, in fact. My issue, I think, like yours, Lisa, is that the BMI kind of leads to weight bias, where that's all the doctor looks at. And there have been studies that show that a higher a person's BMI is, the less likely they are to go for regular checkups. And so the more likely that other health problems will be overlooked because they don't want to be continuously told they're fat, right? It's demoralizing for sure. And it's, you know, something that I am very sensitive with when I work with clients. I do have to, like you, point out the health risks involved of having a waist circumference over a certain number of centimeters. And I give information and I give support and I can provide accountability. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's the patient or the client's choice. But as long as you're giving them the information without judgment, this is you know, you're the waist circumference above this level, you're at higher risk of hypertension, diabetes type two and insulin resistance and, you know, cardiovascular disease. So all these different things and cancers and things that having a waist circumference below a certain amount doesn't have to be so skinny. I personally, like I'm sure you do, you never talk about being thin. You talk about being healthy and being strong and, and for the long term. So I tend to use waist circumference rather than BMI as a, as a marker. And there's also this interesting thing that not everybody who's overweight is unhealthy. Some people who are overweight are unhealthy, and it's more likely that you'll have high cholesterol, high inflammatory markers, insulin resistance, etc. But there are overweight people who are very healthy, and they don't need the same management as the unhealthy overweight people. So it's more about what's the whole package. That's it. It's such a holistic approach, isn't it? It's like your lifestyle, your sleep, your food, your stress levels, and then your predisposed markers with family history um, and things like that. Yeah, everything has to be taken into account. And I think that that's the main reason why I wanted to chat through these health risks associated with menopause was to give the information to highlight these risks, but also the importance of possibly using HRT, which comes down to a decision made between you and the doctor, but also lifestyle and the choices that you're making can really determine those outcomes post-menopause as well. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Sarah, I just want to say thank you so much for giving your time today. And I'm sure the listeners will be hopefully feeling a little bit more secure in how they can approach a doctor, talk about the health risks and maybe put some lifestyle changes into their life to prevent some of these health risks as well. Thank you, Lisa. It was lovely talking to you. Your experience is really important to us here at the Menopause Space. You can check out our free resources as well as our professional advisory services at themenopausespace.com. 
We would also love to hear from you. Send us a voice note to the WhatsApp number in the show notes with comments or any questions you would like us to answer about menopause. Or you can email us at podcasts at themenopausespace.com. Next time on The Menopause Space, navigating change for a positive menopause transition. Listen to your body. We don't need to be stoic like some of our mothers and grandmothers potentially were. We need to really understand what's going on. And I think if you are having symptoms that are really impacting on your day to day, reach out, get some assistance. HR leader Andrea Prince shares her insights and personal experience. That's it for this edition of The Menopause Space. Join us next week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lisa Tarquini in Hong Kong, and thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Reset 40, an evidence-based nutrition and wellness program for menopause and perimenopause. The Menopause Space is a bold type production produced by Paula Sales and edited by Richard Eldred.